together. And one of the reason one of the reasons I love working with kids is they have like absolutely no filter. Like they do not know what they're supposed to say and what they're not supposed to say. Um, so what I mean is like all of us have some sense, I think, of when we come to a place like church or a Bible study at RUF, like there's some things you probably shouldn't say. But kids, they don't realize this. So, um, for example, I was leading a group of fourth grade boys. Uh, my son was not in this class. This was last year. Uh, but fourth grade boys, and I was leading them a class on the Sabbath and teaching them what a great gift the Sabbath is that God gives to us. And like I said, I'm an Old Testament scholar, so I thought I did a pretty amazing job. Um, so at the end of the class, I said, okay, what do y'all think the Sabbath is? And listen to one of the kids' responses. The Sabbath. It's the one day a week when God doesn't want us to have any fun. But he wants us to do boring stuff that we hate. That was what this kid got out of my lesson on the Sabbath. Okay, I usually say, like, there's no wrong answers because I don't want to, like, discourage responses. But that is a wrong answer. I was, like, completely off. But I love that. I love that, not only because it's hilarious, but because he's being honest. Like, that's what he really believed, and so that's what he shared. Right? No filter. Uh, But I, I think the thing is, we sometimes feel like that ourselves. Even if we don't say it out loud. Right? We have a filter. Oh, I can't say that. Right? God, God's kind of boring. Or God's kind of prudish. Right? He's a killjoy. He doesn't want me to have any fun. Um, my life did not turn out the way that I wanted it to. The circumstances are not what I was expecting. Um, we don't always verbalize these things, but a lot of us feel that way a lot of the time. But listen how far those kind of thoughts are from what the Bible describes what it's like to follow, follow Him. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite verses. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 19, 9 through 11. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Like you have to know honey in their culture is like the sweetest thing in the entire world. They don't know cane sugar. They don't know all the sweetness that all they have is honey. So they're saying, knowing God's word is sweeter, it's more delicious than the most delicious thing I can think of. Psalm 1611, in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 10.10, I came, this is Jesus speaking, I came that they may have life and life abundant. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do do you feel the joy that is radiating out of these verses? So my goal tonight is we're going to try to get a little closer to that. A little closer to that. And the way that we're going to get there might be a little weird, but we're going to get there by looking at Leviticus 11, which is the passage that Abby just read for us. Um, Leviticus 11, it's a passage that basically regulates the kind of animals ancient Israelites were allowed to eat and were not allowed to eat. Okay, and the first thing I I need to say, and this is kind of a hard, um, 
uh, thing to understand. So my wife, he just like, you need to go slowly. So I'm going to go slowly. If you think I'm going too slowly, sorry. But okay. The clean and unclean distinction in the Bible, it's not a moral distinction. It doesn't have to do with morality. To be unclean, it does not mean that you've committed a moral sin. Okay? If you're unclean, that doesn't mean you did something wrong. What it means is that in the Israelite system of worship, in their religion, it means that you are unfit for being in the presence of God. You cannot worship in the tabernacle. Basically, like, you can't come to church. If you are unclean, you cannot go to church. You see, what really, truly separates us, both like the ancient Israelites and us today, what separates us from God is moral sin. That's what really separates us from God. But that separation, it's, um, it's like, it's hard to get your hands around. It's invisible. It's um, intangible. So what the whole system of clean and unclean, what ritual uncleanness means or symbolizes is that separation. Right? So it's a tangible symbol that we have. It's a reminder of the real thing that's separating us from God, which is our moral sin. Does that make sense? I think so. We're, we're going to get there. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but the idea behind it is, however serious, like, if you listen as Abby's reading, there's like a lot of like unclean, 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 unclean. Like, there's a lot of things to avoid, right? And the idea behind it is, the seriousness at which you take ritual purity, being ritually clean, even more, you should take seriously being morally pure. Which is actually more serious. Um, our tendency, though, is we take the symbol, the clean and unclean, and we emphasize that. We make that the goal rather than the reality that it's supposed to symbolize. So this is actually what Jesus himself criticized the Pharisees for when they were thinking of the Old Testament food laws. So listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He says, Do you not know that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark gives a little parenthetical statement. Therefore, Jesus declared all foods clean. He said, It's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and those are the things that actually defile a person. Okay, so it's, it's very clear that what Jesus says, it's, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. And I think that, like, all intuitively makes sense to us, right? Like, we, we're like, yeah, nodding our head with Jesus. Like, yeah, we don't have any conception of the things that we eat defiling us, but it's all those moral sins that he said make us defiled. But you have to understand, like, how radical of a statement it was for Jesus to say that at that time. 
right? The Pharisees would not have been so upset with Jesus if it completely made sense to them. But then the question, I think, for us, and that we're going to talk about this, this evening, is if that's what's important, if, if what makes us truly unclean, if what defiles us is the moral sin, you might be thinking, well, then why the law in the first place? Like, why this whole elaborate system of rules of animals you can and cannot eat if really, what really matters is your heart and the things that come out of your heart. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening. We're going to talk about what is the purpose of the law, and then um, at the end, briefly, we'll talk about what is its relevance for us still today. Okay, so one, what is the purpose of the law? And then two, really, how is it relevant for us today? Uh, So the purpose of the law really had two things. One, to teach the Israelites about themselves. And two, to teach the Israelites about God. Really basic. Like one of my um, spiritual mentors, uh, when I was in college, he always encouraged me, if you're ever reading a Bible passage, like really simple, ask yourself, what does this teach me about yourself? And what does this teach you about God? That's what the law is. It teaches the Israelites about themselves, and it teaches them about God. Uh, So we think the Israelites are strange uh, because they have all these rules that are obscure about what kind of animals they can and cannot eat. But have you ever considered that we, uh, we also have rules about food? And they might be strange to people who aren't in our culture. Uh, And what these rules do, our rules about food, they signal to other people what kind of people we are. Uh, So here are a few examples that I thought of. any of y'all like going to like farm-to-table restaurants? Have you ever heard of that? Farm-to-table? Here's the rule. You shall not eat any food that is not locally grown or responsibly sourced. What does this say? This says, I care about the environment. Right? Or what about this one? Um, there's like this fad. I don't know if it's a fad. Going around intermittent fasting. Any of y'all do that? Sorry if you do. I don't want to offend. But the rule is, you shall not eat between the hours of 6 p.m. and 8 a.m. You can't eat for 14 hours. All of your, or they call it time-restricted eating, all of your eating has to be done within 8 hours. Why? Because it says, I'm a disciplined person. Or the keto diet, you shall not eat more than 20 grams of carbohydrates in one day. It says, I'm extremely health-conscious. And then you have those people who are like, man, that just, that's crazy. I just eat whatever I want. You shall not have any prohibitions on what you eat. Right? That means, hey, I'm a laid-back person. Right? I'm easygoing. I'm not like all those other people out there. You see, what the ways in which we signal to others who we are is by what we eat or what we don't eat. And it's the same way with the Israelites. The purpose of all the food laws is actually given a, num- a number of chapters later in Leviticus chapter 20. That's uh, verses 24 through 26. It says this. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So this is God talking to the Israelites. I've separated you from all the peoples around you. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make your, for yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you 
from the peoples, that you should be mine. The food laws in Leviticus chapter 11, they set apart the Israelites from the nations around them. As one scholar writes, listen to this, every meal, every meal the Israelites eat, it's a reminder of God's election of Israel out of the nations. It's also Israel's call to keep themselves separate from the uncleanness of those nations, to be a holy people. The food laws thus became a sign of Israel's identity and calling, a wall of separation between Israel and the nations. The food laws create a wall between the Israelites and all the other peoples around them. It signals to everyone around them by what they eat, that they belong to God. And that's what the law teaches them about themselves. So the law teaches the Israelites that they're set apart for God, that they're different from all the other people around them. And the law also teaches the Israelites about who God is. Okay. You probably want me to explain, I think, I assume, what's the rationale behind why some animals are permitted to be eaten and other animals aren't? I think that's like a very natural question, a a question a lot of people have. Um, A real kind of basic, basic answer that I would give is that at the heart of all of the unclean and unclean laws, at its heart, it's about the contrast between life and death. Life and death. So all of the animals that God says you cannot eat, in some way, they are more associated with death than all the other animals that you can eat. In verses 40, uh, 24 through 28, if you look down to your bulletin, it talks about how anyone who touches a dead carcass is unclean. And that dead carcass, it can belong to a clean animal, it can belong to an unclean animal, it doesn't matter. If you touch something that's dead, you are the most severe, the greatest degree of uncleanness out of anything. The point it's trying to make is that death is the most anti-God thing that there is. There's nothing more contrary to who God is than death. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Now, a lot more can be said about that. You can go through all the various different animals and uh, we could talk about all that. If you are interested in that, I am interested in that. I love talking about it. So if you want to, like, please come up to me after. We can talk more about it. But for now, what I want us to realize, though, is that we need to be asking the questions about the Bible that the Bible is asking. What I mean by that is we read Leviticus 11 and we have a ton of questions we want to ask about it. Why this and why not that? How come these animals and not these other animals? But Leviticus 11, the purpose of it is not to cause us to ask these kind of questions. Actually, Leviticus 11 is the answer to another question. Leviticus 11 is answering a question uh, that really all of Leviticus is about, maybe even the whole Bible is about. 
And it's this question. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Have you ever thought about that question? Like, seriously thought about it. It isn't... Have you ever felt the weight of that question? If we don't, if we don't feel that question, like feel it, feel it kind of like in our core, then we can't understand the gospel. We won't know why the gospel is so tremendously freeing if we don't understand that question. We won't worship God in the way that He deserves. Our faith will be lukewarm. Our hearts will be captured by loves other than God. If that question doesn't cause us to tremble, then it means one of two things. Either we don't understand God's holiness, or we don't understand our own sinfulness. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Um, So when people find out that um, I study the Old Testament... A lot of times I get this, a comment somewhere along these lines. You might have heard it yourself. You might have maybe even thought of it yourself before. They'll say something along the lines of, man, I really prefer the God of love of the New Testament much more than this very angry, full of judgment and wrath God of the Old Testament. It's a really common statement. But I think what they're really saying deep down, um, and I don't think they would kind of verbalize or vocalize in this way, but what I really think they're saying is they don't know how to handle God's holiness. We don't know how to handle God's holiness. Like, we love Christmas. God with us, Emmanuel, right? The nearness and intimacy of God that Jesus brings. But when we hear about God's holiness, we're kind of like, huh? What? We don't know what to do with it. And that's why I think we need passages like this. We need the Old Testament to get a grasp of what God's holiness means. So I think the best picture I'm gonna get I can think of is in Exodus chapter three. And this is Moses in the burning bush. Okay, so if someone were asking, man, how would you explain God's holiness? I would go to Exodus chapter three. This is what it says. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. God was in the bush, and he called out to Moses, and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then he said, Don't come any nearer. Take off your sandals. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Um, so if you're not familiar with the story, at this point in the biblical story, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. 
Moses, he grew up like as a prince. I don't know if you've seen Prince. He grew up as a prince in the Egyptian court. He kills an Egyptian defending an Israelite, and he runs away to a place called Midian, which is basically the desert, and he becomes a shepherd. And he's just out minding his own business, doing his shepherding, and all of a sudden he sees a bush. And there's something strange about that bush. That bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. The fire is not burning the bush down. This burning bush, this is the clearest visible picture the Bible gives us of what it means for God, who is holy. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire in Deuteronomy 4.24. God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He's completely other. He's perfect. But he is in this bush, and the bush is not burning. It's the clearest picture we have of God dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. God tells Moses to take off his sandals because where he is standing is holy ground. That space is sacred. It's because God is there. God is present. And so he tells Moses to take off his sandals. And what that means in that culture is you take off your sandals when you have nowhere to go, when you're home. You take off your sandals because you belong. What God is inviting Moses into is a relationship. He's saying, Moses, you have nowhere to go right here. This is in contrast, if you remember the Passover story. Passover, God tells the Israelites to keep their sandals on. He says, when you're at home, you're eating the Passover meal, keep your shoes on. Because you better get ready to leave at a moment's notice. This place is not your home. Egypt is not your home. Here, God, holy, majestic, awesome God, he's saying, Moses, your home is here. Your home is with me. I'm holy like a fire, but I will mercifully dwell with you. I will not burn you up. That's what it means for God, who is holy, to dwell in the midst of an un, of a sinful people. And that's really what the whole entire religious system of the Israelites is for. It's for God to be able to dwell in the midst of his people. Because really, guys, that's what God wants. God wants to. He created us to dwell with us. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God creates a place and he creates people to fill that place and he creates them to live with him in peace and harmony and fullness of joy. So God wants so badly to dwell with his people that he sets up this whole elaborate system to make it possible. He wants to show them both how holy he is, how he's the true source of life, Yet at the same time, he wants to show them that they are set apart and that they belong to him. So the food laws, they teach the Israelites, one, that they are set apart, that they belong to God. And secondly, the food laws teach the Israelites that God is holy, but that he mercifully dwells with his people. As John has been talking about with us these past few weeks, though, these, all these Old Testament laws, 
from the very beginning, they ultimately pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the laws. As we saw in the passage that I quoted earlier, he says, all, all foods are clean. There's nothing that you can put in your body that's going to make you unclean. So before, the Israelites, they kept these food laws in order to separate them from other cultures. Remember I said they made a wall between the Israelites and the Gentiles? Well, last semester, we talked about the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, he has a vision. And this is what the vision was. It says, Peter became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing what he was going to eat, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, so these are all the animals that Peter, as a good Jew, would never have touched his entire life. These are the animals that Leviticus 11 says you cannot eat. If you eat these, you are unclean. These are unclean animals. So Peter says... By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, so we have all the Old Testament laws. They're all fulfilled in Jesus. Peter who's kind of at this time period when this transition is coming, he still keeps all the Old Testament food laws. But God gives him a vision. He says, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. The interesting thing about this story, though, is Peter doesn't go out and start eating all of the unclean animals. What ends up happening is Peter interprets this story as meaning... Gentiles who are non-Jews are now clean. That dividing wall that before separated Jews and Gentiles, it's now been abolished because now there are no food laws. All foods are clean, which means all people are clean, which means the gospel takes all the things, the barriers that once separated us from one another, right? all the things that we as people we naturally gravitate to that separate us, whether it's race and ethnicity, or you know, socioeconomic status, where you're from, where you grew up, all these things, it doesn't matter. God says in the gospel, everything, everybody, everybody, anybody can be saved. So that's one point, the, uh, the law's relevance for us today. But the second thing is, as I was thinking about it, it made me realize that God actually still does really care what we eat. Like even though the food laws of Leviticus 11, they don't apply to us today, God really does still care about what we eat. And what we eat still does say a lot about who we are. God cares so much about what we eat that the last thing Jesus did when, uh, before he was crucified is he gave us a meal. The Bible says that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So before he was crucified, Jesus instituted a meal for us. And when you eat this meal, when you eat Jesus' body, 
in the bread and his blood in the wine, it says a lot about you. This is what it says. It says that you are loved by a holy God. You're forgiven of all of your sins. You have God's spirit in you. God is dwelling, not just with you, but in you. God's spirit dwells in you. You're being made more and more like Jesus every day, and you're being prepared for an eternal home in heaven with God. That's what that meal says about you. What you you eat says a lot about you. So if you are a Christian here today, I hope that you are regularly attending church where you're hearing the gospel preached and where you're regularly partaking in the Lord's Supper. So you might have noticed, like, we've never taken communion here at RUF. And that's like a very um, intentional thing because we want to make it very clear that RUF is not the church and it's not a replacement for church. We want you to be actively, regularly participating in a local church with a body of believers who aren't just in college, hearing the gospel, in fellowship, and partaking of that meal. Now, if you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to a message on Leviticus 11. Uh, But please, please know the holy and almighty God loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He wants to dwell with you. Um, One of my, everybody probably says this, but one of my spiritual heroes is John Calvin. And maybe not, maybe not everybody says that. Uh, But he, uh, one, one thing he says that I really love is there's only two ways. There's only two ways that you can relate to God. It all boils down to this. You can either relate to God as a slave relates to a master, or you can relate to God as a son relates to a father. Both masters and fathers give you rules. But masters, they expect perfect obedience, and they motivate you by fear. A father, a father values the relationship more than anything else. More than obedience, what the Father wants is a relationship. And He doesn't motivate by fear or punishment, but He motivates by love and sacrificial giving. My prayer for you is that you'll come to see God as this loving Father, this loving Heavenly Father who wants to have a relationship with you, who sent His Son, His only Son, for you, to die on a cross for all of your sins, to be raised again, So that as the God who conquered death, you could join with him in his family. That you might have true and abundant life here and forevermore. Please bear with me.